Well, bless you. It's a tremendous honor. I love your pastor, Phil and Tammy. And join me in thanking the Lord for such tremendous pastors here at Influence Church. And Kim Walker-Smith and the worship team, let's thank the Lord for that. Thank you. Thank you for letting the Lord use your gift. Well, I write history, and I'm also a Christian, and so I try to weave it all together. I tell people history is not prophetic, but it is predictive. So past behavior is the best indicator of future performance. So a lot of things are going on today in the world, and we want to make sense of it. And so I'm going to give a little history and bring it back to the Lord. So I have a PowerPoint presentation and a book on socialism, the real history from Plato to the present. And uh, through history, uh, you have kings, Pharaoh, Caesar, Kaiser, Sultan, Tsar. It's the most common form of government in world history is a king. And the centuries go on, the kingdoms get bigger, till the king of England was the biggest. But democracies and republics is where you take the power from a king and you put it into the hands of the people. But wait a second, what if the king wants the power back? How do you get people to give up their power? Well, two ways. Uh, one is fear, and when people get fearful, they'll trade freedom for security, and the other is free stuff. <laughs> where they'll trade freedom for dependency. And so the Bible says, uh, the fear of man bringeth a snare, but then it says, um, also free stuff, every man is tempted when he's drawn away with his own lust and enticed. So a drug dealer can take over a neighborhood two ways. He can come in with guns and shoot people and get everyone in fear and they panic and submit, or he can give away free drugs and everybody gets hooked. And then he says, oh, you want some more? Uh, you're going to have to sell yourself into prostitution. You're going to have to rob from your neighbor. And it's sort of like in uh, nature, uh, hunters can use guns or they can use bait. <laughs> I um, was reading about how they would catch wild pigs. They'd put a post in the ground and put some corn around the bottom. And the pigs would come and eat the corn, sort of ignore the post. And then the next day, there's two posts and three, and the next day, four. And they begin to put them in a semicircle until finally there's just a little opening, and the pig comes in, eats the corn, and then you close the gate, right? And so it's this idea that you get dependent on uh, the government. And now, the fear, uh, deep state, big government creates or capitalizes on chaos and discord to produce an atmosphere of fear, and then they come along and promise a solution of free stuff, and they consolidate control. So the scriptures are Psalms 133, how good and pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. Everybody say unity. unity. And then uh, the other side of that is Proverbs 6, six things the Lord hates, and the last is he that soweth discord. Everybody say discord. So we got unity, we got discord. And imagine being in heaven and somebody sowing discord. <laughs> Lucifer, he got a third of the angels to rebel in heaven. And um, so now that he's down on earth, he sows discord in the family, right? Gets uh, Adam to blame Eve. And, and then one of the stories is the first 400 years of Israel, they have a republic and there's no king. And it was unique in world history, uh, but I don't have time to get off onto that. But here is Gideon. He just defeated 100,000 Midianites, so there is no threat to Israel. They're at peace, but he has somebody that sows discord, an illegitimate son named Abimelech, and he goes to the town of Shechem, and he begins to sow discord. He's the first one uh, to do uh, identity race politics. You say, what? Yeah, he says, um, he tells the men, is it better for you that all the sons of Gideon reign over you? Remember also that I am your bone and your flesh, and uh, Brethren spake in the ears of the men of Shechem and said, we got to vote for him. He's our brother. And so then they take money from the treasury 
and they hire rioters, protesters, uh, vain and worthless persons, it says, and they uh, gave him three score and 10 pieces of silver out of the Balbarith, wherewith Abimelech hired vain and worthless persons, rioters, and they did violence. They went to his father's house at Ophir and slew his brethren. So could you imagine, right, somebody taking and hiring people to commit violence? Now, ancient, <laughs> ancient Israel's Republic would have ended here rather than Saul had not somebody threw a millstone over a wall and killed Abimelech. But here's his first idea of sowing discord. Israel was completely at peace, no enemies, and somebody comes along and wants to sow internal discord. Uh, it was studied. Do you know 500 years ago, Italy was a bunch of city-states, Venice, Genoa, Naples, Florence, Siena, and they always fought. And a guy named Machiavelli thought if one prince could control all of Italy, it would stop the infighting. So he writes a book called The Prince, where he advocates the ends justifies the means. The end of one prince controlling all of Italy is such a good end because it'll stop the infighting. Any means necessary to get there is justified. Lie, cheat, steal. So if a prince wants to conquer a city and the city does not want to be conquered, it would hate him. But if he pays criminals to kill cows, burn barns, smash windows, like Abimelech did, the people will panic and they'll cry for someone to come along and fix this mess. And the prince can come in, get rid of the very people he bribed to commit the problem. Nobody will know the better for it, and everyone will praise the prince as a hero. And so it's, uh, it's good marketing. You create the need and fill it. You go around the back of the house and set it on fire, and then you go around the front of the house and sell them a fire extinguisher, and they'll pay anything for it, and thank you for being there. So it's called Machiavellianism, where you create or capitalize on a crisis to consolidate control. Uh, you know that quote a little more recently as, uh, you don't ever want a crisis to go to waste. It's an opportunity to do important things that you would otherwise avoid. And then uh, that quote is quoted by others. And um, anyway, I'll skip past it for the sake of time. But we see a crisis, our response is what? How can we help people through it? They see a crisis, their response is how can we usurp power from it? And they don't just see a crisis, they want to help start crises. Uh, quote from Henry Louis Mencken, the urge to save humanity is almost always a false face for the urge to rule it. Power is what all messiahs really seek, not the will to serve. And 33rd governor of California. I, you've got an opportunity for a governor. And Anyway, so it's one of the traditions. Uh, amen. <laughs> one of the traditional methods of imposing statism or socialism is medicine. It's easy to disguise a medical program as a humanitarian product. In other words, if there's a healthcare crisis, it's easy for them to come along and say, well, we want to help people, but we got to take away your freedom to do it. And uh, he says, if you don't stop this, behind it will come another federal program that will invade every area of freedom until one way we'll wake up and find we have socialism. And so I saw this cartoon, uh, David Lane sent out, a dangerous new variant. It appears to be mutating into a totalitarian dictatorship. <laughs> and um, anyway... Some more examples of sowing discord. Britain went on to become the biggest empire on planet Earth. The sun never set on the British Empire. And they had all of India. Do you know how they took over India? 1714, they landed and started a trading post that turned into a trading fort that turned into them getting involved in local politics and lots of kingdoms. They would give guns to one kingdom, guns to another kingdom, and stir up ancient animosities between them and when the people began to bloody them up, the British would come in to restore order and take over both kingdoms. And then they'd do it again and again until they took over all of India. A quarter of the world's population was under their thumb. And they tried doing that in America during the Revolutionary War. 
It's even listed in our declaration that the king was inciting insurrection. So General Johnny Burgoyne comes down from Canada, goes to the Mohawk Indians, and they're at peace with the Americans, and he offers them money for scalps. And so they go in front of the British Army and scalp, right? And they continued to do this uh, during the War of 1812. Fort Mims, Alabama. And the British controlled Pensacola, which was to the south. And the British gave guns to the Indians and promised them money for scalps. And so this is the historical marker. Here in Creek Indian War took place the most brutal uh, massacre in American history. Indians took the fort with heavy loss, killed all but some 36 of the some 550 in the fort. Creeks had been armed by the British in this phase of the War of 1812. So the British are stirring up crises. And why? Do they really care about the Indians' issues? No, they want to take over America, and they're using them. And uh, George Washington warned of this in his farewell address. Disorders and miseries gradually incline the minds of men to seek security and repose in the absolute power of an individual who turns the disposition to the purposes of his own elevation on the ruins of public liberty and let there be no change by, <clears throat> by usurpation. What's usurpation? That's doing things you're not authorized to do, but you want to do something good, and people let you do it. Usurpation, though, in one instance may be the instrument of good, it is the customary weapon by which free governments are destroyed. The precedent of usurpation must always greatly overbalance in permanent evil any transient benefit uh, that it might yield. And so uh, we go from Lucifer sowing discord in heaven, Abimelech sowing discord on earth, Machiavelli sowing discord, the British taking over all these kingdoms by sowing discord, and uh, then there's a guy named Hegel. Isn't he handsome? And uh, so Napoleon conquers Europe. A king of a German kingdom named Prussia says we can't get conquered that easy again. We need to strengthen the state. And so Hegel teaches at the University of Berlin. And he says things like, the state is God walking on earth. The state is our mortal God. Um, we must worship the state. And so uh, this is where the German militarism came, later turned into Hitler and so forth. But... Um, so Hegel says, how do you take power? Matter of fact, one of his students is Karl Marx. And uh, so uh, Hegel says, how do you take power from the people and reconcentrate it back into the state? Right? So you got fear and free stuff. Well, so uh, he has dialectics. And it's a triangle with one corner a thesis, opposite corner an antithesis or antithesis, and top corner is a synthesis. It sounds complicated, but it's not. So Karl Marx says, you start off with the status quo. Everybody's used to the way things are going. You have to create discord. You have to, you have to create a problem that's real bad, and then everybody's happy to settle for your answer. That's half as bad, right? And then that becomes the new starting point. Then you create another problem that's real bad, and everybody's happy to settle for your answer. That's half as bad. Then you create another problem that's real bad, and everybody's happy to settle for your answer. That's half as bad. And every time you settle, you give up a little more of your freedom to the state. And um, uh, so now how, do, how did Karl Marx suggest to create a problem that's real bad? You send in agitators, agent provocateurs, community organizers, labor organizers. Their job is to find people with grievances. Like the British went to the Indians. Like, uh, you know, and so the um, idea was that you would send in agitators, agent provocateurs, community organizers, labor organizers, and they would stir up uh, domestic uh, dissatisfaction and discontent, and in the chaos, people would surrender their freedoms. You could usurp power. And so Karl Marx called it critical theory. 
So critical theory is where you study a culture and you identify all the groups and you pit them as victims and oppressors, haves and have-nots, and then you organize protests that you escalate into riots and violence, and then when there's insurrection and chaos and fear, in the fear, people will trade freedom for security. And so he would organize the proletariat against the bourgeois, which is the working class against the business owners. Would organize the poor against the rich, blacks against the whites, Catholics against the Protestants, Muslims against the, the Christians, Hutus against the Tutsis in the Congo and Rwanda. Really didn't care who the two sides are, really didn't care what the issues are. Their goal is to cause a destabilizing crisis that causes everybody to get into fear and panic and surrender their freedom for security. Now, the Hutus versus the Tutsis in the Congo and Rwanda. Everybody down there got along. They all saw themselves as one. And the colonizers came in and, and would measure their heads and measure their craniums and their size. And they would say, you're a Hutu and you're a Tutsi. They literally created races where there were none before. Could you imagine the government wanting to, to in, intentionally create differences just to pit people against each other? <clears throat> uh, anyway, um, so Castro said the uh, revolution needs the enemy. The revolution needs his antithesis, which is the counter-revolutionary. If enemies were not lacking, they had to be fabricated. So you need somebody to organize against. You need to create a crisis. How did it come to America? You had a uh, railroad car company in Chicago, Pullman, and uh, economic downturn. They couldn't pay their workers. And so a guy comes to so Discord named Eugene Debs. And he organizes protests and riots. And they destroy $80 million worth of railroad cars in 27 states. I mean, it spreads across the country. And since everything shipped on railroads, mail and everything, the whole country is frozen. Could you imagine rioting and violence just sweeping the country? Hmm. And uh, then he, uh, he starts the Socialist Party of America. And he runs for president five times from 1900 to 1920, one time from prison. And... Um, then in 1920, branching off of the Socialist Party is the Communist Party USA, and they run president, uh, candidates for president from 1920 to 1940. What happened in 1940? That's when Democrat president Franklin Roosevelt makes a treaty with Stalin. And so they said, why should we run our own candidates? Uh, let's just run, support uh, that party. So uh, 1920s, there is a republic in Germany. So we talked about um, Lucifer's own discord, Abimelech's own discord, Machiavelli doing it, the British doing it, uh, Hegel talking about doing it, and, um, and then Eugene Debs taking advantage and sowing discord. But we have 1920s and 30s Germany, and it was a republic where people voted for their leaders, and somebody started a party named Hitler, and the party's name was National Socialist Workers' Party, National Arbeitser, which is German for worker, um, Socialistis party, and he had a violent arm to it, sort of an Abimelech hired vain and worthless persons, but his were called brown shirts. And they were nicknamed Sturmabteilung, which means stormtroopers, because they would storm into the meetings of Hitler's opponents and shout down the speakers and disrupt the meeting and throw it into chaos. And then they would lock arms and block buildings. Could you imagine people locking arms and blocking things? And they would block streets. And uh, then they would went into the cities and they smashed the windows and looted and set on fire stores. Over 7,000 stores in the night of broken glass, crystal knocked. Could you imagine people going into cities and smashing things? And, and then their capital got attacked. It was an insurrection, and evidence points to Hitler's own people setting it on fire, the Reichstag. But in the confusion, Hitler blames his political opponents for doing what he did. 
right? He starts to accuse them and round them up and bring them in and hold them in prison with, with, without justice and then has them shot without a trial. And when the dust settles, Hitler had no political opponents left. And Germany transitioned from a republic bottom up to a dictatorship top down, right? So here's the idea. You sow the discord so that you can come along wanting to be the answer, but he was behind it the whole time. And uh, so it's called psychological projection where the attacker blames the victim. Karl Marx says, accuse others of what you do or blame shifting. Little kids do this. I'm not the mean one, you're the mean one. And, uh, and so after World, is this interesting? Yeah. I, I always, uh, well, it's not your typical Sunday service, but we're all living through this. So we sort of want to get a perspective. And again, history sort of gives us a, a, a track record so that we can identify what's going on. After World War II, Germany, France, England give independence to all their former colonies. India becomes a brand new country. Egypt, Israel, Romania, Poland, Hungary, all these countries, and they have brand new leaders. And they're climbing out of the post-World War II crisis. It looks hopeful, except the KGB decides it's going to send people into the countries and do critical theory. Right, so they'll identify all the groups, ethnically, Bosnian, Croat, Serbs, economically, racially, uh, religiously, you know, Sunni, Shia, Orthodox, it didn't matter. And they would pit them against each other and they would have some be the victims and the others be the oppressors, the haves and the have-nots. And then they would organize protests that they would escalate into riots and violence. Why violence? Because when there's violence, people react emotionally, not rationally. And so now they can be manipulated easier. And it's called fear-mongering, intentionally getting people into fear and hysteria. And then they would co-opt the media with bribes and threats to blame the new leader of the new country for all the problems. And when the country gets panicky and confused because all this rioting and violence, they would do a coup or a rigged election and replace the leader with a Soviet puppet, and the violence would suddenly stop. And everybody would sigh relief until they realized they just gave up the farm. And now they're underneath of a Soviet puppet. And 45 countries fell to communism this way. And uh, it's called Behind the Iron Curtain. And uh, Mao Zedong did a little tweak on it. He came up with the idea of a continuous revolution. So you don't just do it you know, once to take over. You keep this thing going. It's like a continuous pan pandemic. <laughs> right? You want to milk this thing for all it's worth. You want to keep people in fear and panic. And uh, now Truman does nothing. He thinks the United Nations he helped form will bring world peace. Uh, but the next president is Eisenhower. And he says, the United Nations seems to be two distinct things by the two worlds divided by the Iron Curtain. To the free world, it seems it should be a, a constructive form. To the communist world, it was a sounding board for their propaganda to be exploited for disunity. We're back to Satan, right? So in discord. And so Eisenhower can do nothing or he can counter this, and that's what he does. In 1953, Iran sides with the Soviet Union and it nationalizes their oil industry. And you're like, mm, big deal. Well, wait a second. Britain has no oil fields. So in 1908, Britain formed the Anglo-Iranian Oil Company. You know it better as BP. British Petroleum is really the Anglo-Iranian Oil Company. And so when Iran sides with the Soviet Union, Britain has an oil shortage. And so they appeal to Eisenhower, who approves the first CIA operation to overthrow a country's leader. It's called Operation Ajax. And the CIA operative on the ground is Kermit Roosevelt Jr., the grandson of Teddy Roosevelt. And uh, he goes 
over to Tehran, and he does the same thing in reverse. He recruits mobsters and gangsters and radical imams, and he stages protests and riots, and they attack mosques, and they co-opt the media with bribes and threats to blame Mossadegh for all the problems. And then when the country gets panicky enough, they put Mossadegh under house arrest, lock him away for the rest of his life where he dies, and they replace him with the Shah, who loved America because we put him in, and he did have a rightful claim to the throne. And so the CIA does the same thing in Guatemala, 1954, and the Congo and the Dominican Republic, Chile in 1973, and the KGB does the same thing with uh, Brezhnev helping Yasser Arafat to start the PLO and helping Castro to take over Cuba and helping um, uh, Che Guevara to start FARC in Colombia and take over the, the ELN in Bolivia. And this, um, hundreds of coup attempts in Africa and then the Chinese doing the Far East. This is called the Cold War. And these tactics of how to sow discord in countries so that in the confusion, you can replace the leader with one of your own. These tactics have been perfected and perfected and perfected. And uh, Chris Matthews, he says, I remember the Cold War. I've seen what socialism is like, and I don't like it, okay? It's not only not free, it doesn't work. I believe that if Castro and the Reds had taken over, uh, there would have been executions in Central Park. By the way, this was Chris Matthews' last time on TV. He must have said something they didn't like and, and interesting. And um, anyway, for the, the sake of time, I'm going to skip past uh, some stuff. This was interesting. So Karl Marx, Frederick Engels, they write the Communist Manifesto, 1848, and they say this, that they were alchemists of the revolution. Their business consists in spurring it into artificial crises. And every new crisis must be more serious and more universal than the last. Every fresh slump must ruin more small capitalists. This will increase the number of the unemployed, and the end commercial crisis will lead to a social revolution. Could you imagine that? They want to actually put out a business, people? Why? Because socialism is a ruling class and a ruled class. You've got to get rid of the middle class. And uh, so here is a 1934 cartoon in the Chicago Tribune, and it talks about Stalin in Russia, and it says, spend, spend, spend under the guise of recovery. Uh, says, bust the government, blame the capitals for the failure, junk the Constitution, declare dictatorship. So the idea is you spend, spend, spend not to stimulate the country, not to build the infrastructure. You spend to bankrupt the country because the more money you create, it makes everybody's savings disappear. And everybody on fixed income, they're not going to be able to live. What are they going to do? Surrender their lives to the government in exchange for a handout. And um, so you want to create the economic crises and um, so that's what happened when the Depression happened. FDR has all these things concentrating. And the, um, let's see. So um, I'm going to skip past some stuff. This was interesting. Uh, infiltrating the churches. So the, uh, Albert Herlong was a um, commu uh, congressman in Florida. And in 1963, he reads 45 tactics that the communists used to take over countries. And, and one of them was infiltrate the churches and replace revealed religion with social religion. Isn't that interesting? This was actually written in 19... And one of the people that lived through this is Manning Johnson. He was a black man who became a communist for 10 years, and then he realized they really didn't want to help his community. Yeah, there were some successful black men that wanted to build a hospital and build real estate developments, and they kept being sabotaged. And he goes, they don't want to help us. They just want to use us to sow division. 
And so he left them and he wrote a book, Color, Communism, and Common Sense. Archibald Roosevelt, the son of Teddy Roosevelt, writes the foreword. But he talks about them infiltrating the churches. And he said in the Soviet Union, they would make them spit on the Bible and kick the Bible and, you know, get, he says they, they couldn't do that in the minority communities because they were too attached to the Bible. So he says their tactic was to change the gospel. And they said, uh, the new line went like this, Jesus the carpenter was a worker like the communists. He was against the money changers, the capitalists, the exploiters of the day. That is why he drove them from the temple. Communists are the modern day fighters against capitalists or the money changers. If Jesus were living today, he'd be persecuted like the communists. So forget the fact that we're all sinners and our sins, we deserve to go to hell and Jesus, the son of God, died on the cross to pay for all of our sins. Forget that. He was just an activist. And um, Alexander Solzhenitsyn, who spent 11 years in gulag camps, said, I call upon America to be more careful, prevent those from falsely using the struggle for social justice to lead you down a false road. Anyway, so um, we uh, have a little of that coming to America with a guy named Saul Linsky. And he says, the first step in community organization is community disorganization. He actually rode around with Al Capone's hitmen, Frank Nitti. And so how all he had to do was kill a few people, smash a few windows, and the whole neighborhood would panic and submit to the mob. And so he decided to apply it to politics. And uh, he says the organizer's first job is to create the issues or the problems. Organizer must first rub raw the resentments of the people of the community. The organizer serves up dissatisfaction and discontent, fan the latent hostilities of many of the people to the point of overt expression. Organizer polarizes the issue, helps lead his forces into conflict. He must search out controversy, for unless there's controversy, people are not concerned enough to act. Did you know that in the front of his book, he has an acknowledgement to Lucifer? He does. I got a copy of the book, right? Unless we forget, at least over-the-shoulder acknowledgement to the first radical who rebelled against the establishment, did it so effectively, he at least won his own kingdom, Lucifer. The politics that we have been experiencing in America this last generation has been the devil, right? Sowing discord in heaven, sowing, Abimelech sowing discord, and then these political people from Machiavelli to Hegel studying the British taking over. How do you get people into the discord uh, to be able to have them get into fear and panic, and then they'll trade their freedom for security. And, um, and it's interesting, the devil came to Jesus and offered him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time, and Jesus turned him down, thank God. And, uh, but the idea is that, um, boy, that's pretty audacious that the devil could tempt Jesus like that. When did the devil get all the kingdoms? When Adam sinned, Adam was in charge of the garden, and we know that because he named everything. Naming means you got authority over it. And the Bible says, to whomever you yield your members, servants to obey, to him you are a servant. The moment Adam obeyed Satan, he was posturing himself as the obeyer and the devil being in charge. And all of the devil's kingdoms throughout history are ruled through fear. You do what the king, Pharaoh, Caesar, Sultan, Kaiser says, or you get killed. And um, so uh, we see all these different things, uh, sowing discords and so forth in America. And, and I'm gonna skip past this because the time just keeps going by so fast, and I want to get to something encouraging. So we see that uh, <laughs> that it goes to uh, Cain and killing Abel, and then the Tower of Babylon. And clearly, if any of these dictators throughout history had not died, they would have been happy to have the world under their thumb, and so you can begin to see the trend. Do you know the first prophecy was... Uh, I will put enmity between thee and the woman, between thy seed and her seed. Uh, it shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise its heel. It happened simultaneously on the cross. So the devil's not all-knowing. He doesn't know which seed of the woman's going to crush his head. And um, when uh, you know, the, the three wise men came to Herod, says, where's this 
king of the Jews, you know, here it turns to his scribe, says, you know, where's Jesus? Where's the king of the Jews supposed to be, supposed to be born? And the scribes say, uh, Bethlehem. What was Herod's response? Kill all the babies in Bethlehem. If the devil could have figured out the prophecies, he would have tried to stop them every step along the way. So the brilliance of a prophecy, it had to be written unclear so the devil couldn't figure it out, but clear enough so that when Jesus rose from the dead, he could walk along the road to Emmaus and see, I was prophesied here, here, begin with the, Moses and the prophets. He showed all the scriptures, right? And so um, the, uh, it happened simultaneously on the cross. So the devil thought, he did it. Got Jews and Gentiles to kill Jesus. It's all over. And, uh, but Jesus says, it is finished. And the devil's like, what's finished? The Jews and Gentiles just sacrificed the Lamb of God so that all of our sins could be forgiven and all of humanity now has an opportunity to come back into fellowship with God. So when the devil thought he won and he bruised Jesus' heel, he got his head crushed. He lost his authority. What's his authority? Well, the name Satan means accuser. So all he does is he accuses you to God. He says, God, you're a just God. You've got to judge their sin. And, um, and God says, I did judge it in Jesus. And we approach God through Jesus. And so the devil lost his job. He lost his authority. He's like, they're a sinner. He goes, yeah, yeah, I know they're a sinner. And I judge their sin in Christ, right? So um, anyway, uh, that's good news. And now, every time you look through history, there's always a crisis. You know, we get through this crisis, there'll be another one. We get through that crisis, there'll be another one. Throughout history, there's always bubonic plague, Attila the Hun, Genghis Khan, Spanish flu. There's always crises. And the crisis of the era is sort of an opportunity for the people in the era to show whose side they're on. It's sort of like a self-sorting out of the sheep and the goats. Now, it's not the ultimate one. Where in the Lord were you naked and we clothed you? But on a mini level, the crisis is that some people um, run and hide. And other people say, God, use me. So freshman chemistry class, you have a beaker with a solution and you pour in a catalyst that causes a reaction. And some stuff precipitates and gets heavy and falls to the bottom and other stuff gets effervescent and bubbles to the top. So the time period that we are living in is the solution in the beaker. And the crisis of our time period is the catalyst that is poured in. And some people precipitate and they drop out. They get scared. They run away and they hide. And other people get effervescent. And they say, God, use me. Use me to love the unlovable, to defend the defenseless, to rescue those unjustly sentenced to death, to stand up for righteousness. And so in the early church, when they were persecuted, do you know what they did? They prayed for boldness. They, became, they said, give us more effervescence. And um, anyway, so... Uh, So in, in the last couple of minutes, uh, God exists for eternity. And I may have shared this before, but eternity is a long time. I mean, it's like, and he's, God is all powerful. So he, and he, it's not that he knows everything. It's impossible for him not to know everything. And, he's, he, and everything obeys him. He's a God of rules and laws. And, and he can't help it. That's him. Everything is rules and laws of nature, laws of physics, laws of planetary motion, laws of gravity, everything. And he has laws for human behavior. We just have the choice as to whether or not we're going to follow the laws. And, um, but he's a God of laws. And, um, and, he, and he makes everything. And he's all powerful. I shared, may have shared this, but you know the Hubble telescope in 2004? They focused it on a spot in the sky that was uh, you know, around the Big Dipper, but the spot was so tiny. Uh, if you were to hold a grain of sand between your fingers at arm's length against the night sky, that's how tiny of a spot they focused this Hubble telescope on. And it was a spot intentionally they picked where there was nothing. 
After 11 days, they developed the images. In that little spot was 10,000 galaxies with hundreds of billions of stars in each galaxy. And because light travels in waves, blue is the fastest, red's the slowest, they could see the red shift. They see these galaxies are moving away from us. And they've figured out they're 47 billion light years away. And then they look in the other direction, and there's 47, 93 billion light years across, and the universe is still expanding at the speed of light. The largest star they found is Stevenson 2-18. It's a super gas giant. If you were to place Stevenson 2-18 in our solar system, it would engulf the orbit of Saturn, the sixth planet from the sun. We're the third planet from the sun. Could you imagine one star that big? God is all-powerful. The same, he says he fills heaven. That means that he doesn't just fill it, he keeps it in existence. 93 million billion light years away, and he's here right here. Distance means nothing to him, size means nothing to him. What, what could you possibly offer this being? At some time in eternity past, God said, you know, I, I can make galaxies. I've been there, done that. What's a galaxy anyway? It's a bunch of rocks. A rock cannot love you. So at some time in eternity past, God said, you know, I would really like someone in my image that could love me. Now it gets interesting because love by definition must be voluntary. So inside this framework of everything he controls and everything he knows, he creates one little bitty thing that he does not control, your will. Now he could control it if he wanted to, but that would defeat the whole purpose that he made us. But he creates this little thing of your will and he hides himself behind creation because if he ever revealed himself, he is so totally, incomprehensibly, awesomely powerful. Every atom in your being would fall flat and worship him. And he wouldn't know if you're worshiping him because he is totally, incomprehensibly, powerfully awesome or if you made a willful decision. So he hides himself behind reality, behind creation so that we could have the free choice. If he were to force you to love him, he himself would know that he is forcing you to love him and he would know that your response is not a pure love response, not voluntary. So he, he stands back. He gives you the grace to turn to him. Uh, you know, my credit card has no battery in it, but it has a little chip, and I can go to a grocery store, pile all the products there I want to buy. I stick the little chip in the reader. The, the, the bank sends the signal through the reader into the, the chip. All the chip has to do is respond. And the transaction's made. But the chip can be hardened. It could be damaged. It could, it could not work. No transaction is made. God sends us the great, all we gotta do is respond. Today, if you hear his voice, harden out your heart. So I was thinking of, of a way of explaining it. Imagine a billionaire has a son who goes to college and he drives up in his Lamborghini, his Mitsubishi, I mean, his, you know, whatever the fanciest car is, uh, Alfa Romeo, uh, Porsche, um, what's a Bugatti, somebody said. You know. Imagine this guy drives up to college campus and he's driving the fanciest car. And he's got Rolex watch, gold rings, hair stacked. He's got the best clothes on. He, he walks on campus. He's going to have every girl on campus wanting to meet him. But if he lays all that aside and drives up in an old clunker, got holes in his jeans, the uppity girls are going to ignore him. But then, then there's a girl that likes to study with him in the library. They get to become friends. Uh, she takes heat from the clique because she's hanging around this, this nobody. But she loves him. They get engaged. And then he says... I want to take you back to meet my dad. 
And they're like driving up to this mansion castle estate and the girl's like, whoa, you didn't tell me about all this. He knows that she loves him for him, not because of all of his stuff. If God would have appeared in all of his glory, you'd have every political ladder coming. Oh yeah, yeah, no, but he comes humble as a baby in a manger. Today, if you hear his voice, harden not your heart. Today, the incomprehensibly all-powerful just God of the universe, he's jealous for your love and he won't force it, but he gently pulls like a magnet, just gently pulls on your heart. And he's a just God, he has to judge every sin, but he provided his own son to take the judgment for the sin so you can approach him without any consciousness of sin because he's paid for it. So let's bow our heads and go before the Lord. Heavenly Father, we've had wonderful praise and worship today. We've heard about things going on in the world, but the bottom line is that, is that you have plan A and plan B. Plan A is you bless us, bless us so much we turn to you out of gratefulness, and plan B is you let things get a little difficult and we turn to, turn to you out of desperation, but your goal is to have us turn to you. So today, we turn to you. We're sinners but you had Jesus die on the cross to pay for our sins. So say this with me under your breath. Say, Heavenly Father, I have sinned. I'm a sinner. Thank you for sending Jesus to die on the cross to pay for all of my sins. And Jesus, I thank you for taking that judgment and rising from the dead. And I trust in you completely. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. We've heard about the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, dwell within us. We invite you to dwell within us. May our bodies be the temple of the Holy Spirit. Lead and guide our thoughts every day. Draw us closer to Jesus. Amen.